Welcome to the Head Shepherd Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Ferguson, CEO at NextGen Agri International, where we help livestock managers to get the best out of their stock. I want to take this opportunity to thank our friends at MSD Animal Health and Allflex for sponsoring Head Shepherd again this season. And I'm also excited to introduce our mates at Heinegger as brand new sponsors of the show. MSD and Allflex, or perhaps better known as Cooper's Animal Health in Australia, offer one of New Zealand and Australia's largest livestock product portfolios with a comprehensive suite of animal health and management products connected through identification, traceability and monitoring solutions. Like us, they see how the wealth and breadth of information born out of this podcast can help them and their farming clients achieve their mission of the science of healthier animals. Heineken will need a little introduction to our audience, a market leader and one-stop shop for wool harvesting and animal fibre removal, together with an expanding range of agricultural products and inputs. The Heineken name is synonymous with quality, reliability and precision. The Heineken team have a deep understanding of livestock agriculture, backed by Swiss engineering and a family business dedicated to manufacturing the best. It's fantastic to have both of these sponsors supporting us in bringing Head Shepherd to you each week. And now it's time to get on with this week's episode. Welcome back to Head Shepherd. This week we have Jacob Walker on the show. Welcome, Jacob. Morning, how you doing? Yeah, great, mate. And uh, yeah, you're there at Walkie Farm in, in Albury. I got it wrong in the first cut of this, so we'll get it right this time. Albury in New South Wales. Uh, and yeah, really interesting story of, of getting to where you are now, which is selling meat direct to consumers. Uh, it'd be really cool to hear your your backstory, how, how you ended up where you are today, and then we'll get yeah, sure. Look, really, really quickly, I've, I finished school end of year 10. I wasn't interested in doing a minute longer in, in a classroom than I had to. Uh, my father had a record store, so I went and did four years with my father selling CDs and DVDs, and I really look at that as my retail apprenticeship. You know, we're, I'm third-generation merchant, so we're, we're salespeople, bricks-and-mortar salespeople. That business uh, collapsed. My family owned 15 music stores between, uh, you know, my uncle and my grandpa had the rest of them and illegal downloads came in and just nuked that industry and dad and I, we worked out the lease. We got rid of all the staff and worked the lease out and closed that. And in 2011, we purchased a bicycle shop together. Uh, in 2014, we purchased a local bowling club, which was a derelict building, and we demolished it and we built a... Uh, purpose-built building for our bicycle store in place, a 1,200-metre square building there, and we opened up our cafe uh, in that building, which is a a seven-day-a-week breakfast-lunch cafe. And about sort of 2018, 2019, I became, you know, I got got married and first kid came on the way and I became more interested in what I was eating. I've always been plagued with skin uh, issues and respiratory allergies and, you know, stomach issues my whole life. And my wife, who's very conscientious and very healthy, said, well, maybe it's time to stop stuffing your face with iced coffees and KFC and honey chicken at the local noodle box and start eating a bit better. And I was on a bit of a journey at a few different levels at the time. I was starting to get right into, I guess, animal welfare, watched a few of those factory farm exposés that you see kicking around on the internet and thought, you know, I understand it's not all like that, but, uh, you know, especially for extensive grazing and things, but for things like intensive farming, chickens and pork, just about all of it is like that. And, you know, a bit of a health journey, a bit of a value journey, everything at once. And I thought, I'm going to try to raise a bit of my own beef because I wasn't satisfied with the local beef that was available to me. I wanted grass-fed and finished. I wanted it from animals that hadn't been dependent on uh, pharmaceuticals. That includes drenching, 
And I just couldn't find it, you know, through the local butchers, through the farmers that were at our small farmer's market. I couldn't find it. My dad had a 120-acre, 110-acre hobby farm. You know, that's a postage stamp of a property here in Australia. It's in our street. All our neighbours run ponies out on their 100 acres. Dad's always just backgrounded 40 cattle, get his yearling steers in and fatten them up over spring and summer and sell them off. And I said to Dad, oh, I've got all these great ideas about how I could put the cows moving every day and I can chase them with your chickens and we can do this and do that. And uh, it was just to grow my own eggs and grow my own beef. And when I went to process my first body of beef and put it through the local butcher shop, I realized, you know, maybe I'll do two and try sell the second one and I'll, you know, pay for the processing cost of the first one. So I guilt tripped, I, I, I begged, I pleaded. I forced all my friends and family to buy uh, that body of beef off me to, and, and got the two through, and I got a bit of good feedback about it. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe I'll have a go at this. Uh, and um, you know, that was my first foray into farming. That was 2019. Before then, you know, no agricultural experience. Grew up on a hobby farm, just used it to ride motorbikes around. Um, yeah, and it's been a whirlwind, whirlwind journey since. Excellent. So yeah, four years into farming, and uh, yeah, lots of. Lots of experience, I'm sure, in that last in the, in this four years. Yeah, I guess the there's really novel ways that you've gone about uh, getting that produce to to market. One of them is obviously your your staffless staffless butcher, where where people can can get their meat at any time of the day. And um, yeah, it'd be just interesting to explain that concept. I think it's a it's a really good one. Sure. Well, it became very apparent to me very early on that processing was an enormous bottleneck. You know. We're lucky to have a pretty good abattoir locally and um, I've been working with them really well over the last few years, but I was getting my bodies broken down and packaged at local uh, butcheries and, you know, first they were like, Jake, we can't do more than a body a month, you know, that, that sort of taps us out and they all had a similar attitude and I wasn't interested. I knew doing 12 bodies of beef a year was a pittance of a business, you know, I was, I was never going to pay the rent doing that. Uh and I didn't want to be trying to manage meat coming out of four or five different boning rooms, everyone packing it differently and cutting it differently. Uh, so I, I knew if I wanted to have a go, I'd have to buy my own boning room. So there was a butchery that closed down, 70-year-old building. So I've inherited everything that comes along with that. Uh, and, yeah, we set this up and I had no inclination of doing a storefront. It was purely a boning room where I could get my own butchers in and we could bust down our own and now we do lamb and pork chicken and everything else and i just kept looking at this front of house going you know there's got to be something useful because it's got a store front you know it used to be a normal bricks and mortar butchery and one of the local small goods guys that i was chatting to said when you're opening up that storefront i said oh never you know it's not not something on the radar and this was in i think it was in november 2020 and he said you'll have it open in three months and i thought you mongrel because he's dangled this goalpost in front of me and I said I didn't want to do it but he laid down this challenge and I, I opened it in three and a half months but I knew it wasn't going to work you know our the revenue of our little fledgling farm business that year was going to be about 450 grand gross revenue so to open a shop front and that was all already being sold elsewhere through my you know subscription boxes and the little organic supermarkets I was supplying and the couple cafes I was supplying so even if I cancelled all my accounts and funneled it all through the front of house, 
it made no sense to pay someone minimum wage, you know, 60 grand a year to stand there and sell it and, you know, take all my net profit out of the whole operation. So I thought, you know, the only way it's going to work, I just did a little balance sheet on the back of an envelope is if I could get rid of that wage liability, you know, it actually would make a bit of sense. So I thought what I need is basically a walk-in vending machine. So I got online and I, I, I did a bit of research and I patched together a few different systems. So essentially it's a 24-hour gym uh, where, system where you can turn up, there's a pin code on the door, you can enter in your unique pin, gain access. Everything's cryback packed into portions and frozen. We sell all of our meat frozen. Uh, we, we do literally zero fresh. Uh, and it's all it's all labelled and priced. And then the customers download an uh, app onto their smartphone. They take photos of, through the app of all the barcodes, which adds up a tally in their shopping cart. They hit pay, which it debits their credit card, and then they leave the building. And it's all under surveillance. You know, we've had we've been running like this for three years now, and you know, it's been running really well. So that's a little bit about our twenty four seven butchery. Yeah, excellent. So, yeah, I guess it makes sense. The yeah, the the tools are there for a twenty four hour gym, so no reason it won't work for a butcher shop. The are they so they're obviously locals. Do you get many people driving from distance to to access it, or do they access it otherwise? There are a few customers that you know use Aubrey as their shopping hub, and they they drop in once a month and do a big shop. I do get customers from Melbourne, Sydney messaging saying, hey, we're going to be through on Tuesday and I'll set them up with a one-time code or I'll meet them here if maybe maybe there's someone working here that can let them in. But we also, you know, we've got our uh, .com and we ship orders. We ship meat to uh, Perth, Adelaide, Melbourne, Canberra, Sydney, Brisbane and, you know, all the sort of surrounding metro regions. So there's, there's plenty of ways people can touch our products. Excellent. So one of the things I've always wondered, like growing up on a farm where we only ever eat, oh, ate meat that had been frozen, it always amazes me that the sort of reluctance of the restaurant trade to to take frozen products, whereas, I mean, all of us know it's the same stuff. But So you've obviously overcome that and, and been able to educate people to buy frozen? Yeah, the first two years it was really challenging. I, I was just coming up against it, you know, every which way, every conversation. And the last two years, it's been barely a conversation. It almost never gets brought up. Uh, I, I sell into a lot of restaurants. You know, it's all fine dining stuff. Uh, you know, two chef hat, a lot of good, good local restaurants. And it means absolutely nothing to them. Like they've got freezers full of uh, inventory anyway. You know, you don't destroy meat by freezing it. You, you destroy it by defrosting it wrong. Uh, so, like, if you microwave a piece of meat to defrost it, it's, it's slimy and tough. Uh, if yeah. you just defrost it in the fridge or on the bench, there's no problem. So, it's not something I come up with anymore. I definitely think my throughput would be higher if I had fresh because there'd be more off-the-street adoption, you know, a, a lot more convenience buying. People have to plan ahead to eat our stuff. You know, but as it is, um, we're selling everything we can we can possibly process at the moment. So, it's it's not a massive consideration for me. Yeah, I can. I could count several dozen times where I've chucked a frozen bit of meat in a in a sink of cold water to get it defrosting relatively quickly. So you don't have to. It's not that much prior planning required. Um, but the uh, no, it is a um, yeah. Seems always has strange, seems strange to me. So it's awesome to hear that that people are rethinking that. And I think 
was a long time ago now since I've visited San Francisco uh, farmers markets, but a lot of that product, which would sort of align with your uh, sort of value systems around your product, were all frozen just because of yeah, because of the nature of the beast. You can't um, at at small earth throughput. It's hard to hard to to have fresh product the whole time. So in terms of production system, you're still just doing the beef and you source the rest, or is that all on? Is it all coming from you're now farming chooks and sheep and and everything? Yeah, so we we do all of it in house. Uh, we do uh, beef, lamb, pork, chicken, eggs, uh, a little bit of honey. We're spread pretty thin across all that. Um, I have just started onboarding protein from local farmers. You know, when I started, it was because I couldn't find grass fed and finished beef that hadn't been medicated, hadn't been drenched. Uh, but that was just at a retail level. Now that I've been involved in the local farming community you know, in a reasonably public way the last four years, I've met um, dozens of amazing local farmers uh, farming at all different scales that have grass-fed and finished unmedicated beef going you know, all the way direct to market, plenty of um, you know, holistic grazers and things. So I've just onboarded my first three producers uh, and I'm buying lamb and beef over the hook from them, and we're you know we're currently working behind the scenes to add them as you know the Walkie Farm family on our website to keep the transparency going through to our consumers. But I really look at this whole direct to market space. You know, it's challenging and all like growing the stuff's the easiest bit. And I know that probably offends farmers, but if you go to a farmer with all the challenges in farming and all the variables, if you say to a farmer, "I need you to produce." A thousand lambs that hang at 23 kilos, they'll do it. You know, they're sophisticated enough. Um, they're clever enough. They're resourced enough that they can make it happen. But, you know, saying I'm going to take those same lambs and direct market them, it's an absolute nightmare getting the slaughter, getting the processing, getting the packaging, getting the freight logistics and then finding the sales. And I'm really finding that, you know, my skill set and my inclination, you know, suck at being the sucker for punishment that I am is I can facilitate all those last pieces of the puzzle so it's not all about me it's not all about getting my stuff through you know now we're having a lot of fun supporting other local farmers they're helping us scale faster because you know i can't acquire land um, fast enough to keep keep up with the demand ramp for our products and you know we're able to onboard other locals so we've just started doing that yeah excellent i guess and i like the concept of everyone staying in their lane a bit too so it's it's awesome you do what you're good at and other people do what they're good at and and that's sort of how the world generally works so it's um yeah, it's definitely as a would assist scale rather than having to build up the slow way what's the so your standard consumer of all of the i guess aspects to your meat which is high welfare low chemical i guess um has that transparency through to where it's coming from there's a whole range of things that align with current trends what do you have any inclination for what of those aspects is the strongest or is it all is it all part of the story that they buy it's the it's the clean meat all my consumers are searching out uh, what we call healing food people that are wanting to eat you know just pure unadulterated meat that do, and they know what's in it which is nothing and it's, it's everyone coming from a health aspect you know they but it's the whole package because, like, I don't think you can raise chemical-free meat without having high welfare levels, uh, you know, without working with your environment on your farm in a holistic way. You know, it's, it's all 
sort of wrapped up in one big envelope, but it's, it's all health conscious consumers. Excellent. So what's the, when you sit down on the back of the envelope these days, what's the, what does 10 years look like? What are, what are the, the hairy audacious goal for, for Walkie Farm? Well, look, we need our own abattoir. We're, we're on tender hooks. When I started four years ago, there was three local abattoirs that were um, servicing lamb kills and now there's one. There was two that were doing pork kills and now there's one. I've got to drive to Melbourne to get chickens processed. So that's two trips. That's a trip down leaving at midnight to get them slaughtered and a trip down two days later to pick them up in a refrigerated truck. Um, so, you know, we need um, our own slaughtery. So that's what, you know, we're hoping to get something like that in the next couple of years. There are some local mobs that are looking at, uh, you know, sort of possibly doing their own. I don't want to own an abattoir. I don't want to operate an abattoir. I just need more options than what I've got. So happy to work in with anyone else on that as well. Uh, but look, I've, I've got relatively small herds and flocks. Like we're running about 160 head of cattle at the moment, uh, maybe 120 ewes with lamb at foot. And, you know, I'd like to see them, I, you know, I'd like to have 500 cows in the paddock. I think if I could grow to 500 breeders in the next three or four years, I think I'd have no problem selling all that meat the way things are going. And, and you know, similarly with, with, with sheep, I, I don't want to manage little piddly five-acre paddocks and little hobby blocks. Like we'd like to see some real scale come in behind this business. Yeah, for sure. The, and I guess you are certainly not the first to have a crack at sort of director sales in, in, in this meat game, but I think probably the first, well, not the first, but but coming at it from your angle is a, is a very different angle. Often it's farmers who decide they're going to sell direct to consumer and that's not always their skill set, but with a sales background and, and obviously a, a plenty of tenacity, it's uh that seems like a, a pretty good pretty good model to to and and then that passion for passion for the product as well is all part of all part of the winning winning model. A quick interruption here to remind you of Head Shepherd Premium and our consulting services at Next Gen Agri International. If you love this podcast and want to hear more of them, visit thehub.nextgenagri.com and sign up for Head Shepherd Premium and get an extra podcast each week. If you're listening to this and thinking you really do want to maximise the genetic gain of your livestock and feel more confident around the decisions you're making on farm, then send me an email at mark at nextinagri.com and we'll get in touch and see see where that takes us. I guess on this podcast we talk a lot about genetics. Have you delved into genetics of eating quality or any of that sort of stuff yet or is it all more about what happens regardless of the DNA at this stage? It's, it's more about how it's treated. Look, I'm not, I'm not super sophisticated when it comes to that sort of thing. Like the first few batches of lambs I did, I was just trading in store lambs and finishing them off. So I was buying, you know, Merino Dorset suckers and finishing them off. And then I went and got some, you know, some shedders and finished them off. And, uh, you know, the feedback from the consumers is it, it all, they always seem happy very rarely. Like the, with beef, you know, sometimes it's, Shorthorn, Hereford, Angus, Frisian crosses, Jersey purebreds. Like we've got a real mixed bag in our mob, uh, and the feedbacks are always consistently good. It's not always consistent because the size of the cuts changes and the color of the fat changes and everything. You know, we're we're processing different breeds all throughout the year, um, and you know the, the customers are just sort of we've we've I guess trained them to come along on that journey with us. Uh, 
the first sort of two and a half years of the farm, I ran my numbers and it made no sense to breed anything because buying animals was so cheap. And then when we saw all the prices pump, you know, during the last couple of years, it made I couldn't I couldn't buy a yearling steer and fatten it off and process it. There was nothing left in it for me that was so valuable. So then I got pushed into breeding and went on my own little journey around that. And you know now I'm now I'm buying a heap more animals because I'm trying to dollar cost average my entry because I bought at the absolute height of the market. Yeah. Um, so you know I I guess I I come at it in a different way because the way I look at it and this might offend listeners but I, I sort of feel like the whole industry has a lot of their uh, decisions made for them. Like if you're a cattle producer and you're not doing a black cow, you're at a bit of a detriment. And if you're a sheep producer and you don't have a white sheep. You know, you get you get sucker punched at the yards, and the way an animal looks means nothing to me in terms of a, a revenue sense because I'm a I'm a price maker. Uh, so when I had to buy some animals, I did a bit of research, and you know, things that are really important to me and my customers is is animals animals being fit for purpose, um, and and you know, being able to look after themselves. So we're currently breeding Nguni cattle on our farm, which is a South African breed. You know, Australian farmers think that they're a bit of an odd choice. Uh, I love absolutely uh, everything about them. They're they're small, you know, 400 kilo cows, 450 kilo cows. You know, my, one of my biggest challenges in my whole business is my labour in the butchery does not want to be busting down 280 to 320 kilo carcasses. It hurts them, like they're challenging. And when I put an Nguni steer through and it weighs at 190, they absolutely love it. I walk into the boning room and they're all whistling and it actually makes my life a lot easier having these smaller animals, you know, let alone the efficiency gains in the paddock. Uh, you know, they're very fertile, very docile, and even though they're not a super high marble scoring meat, you know, we've done a bit of um, – I printed off the MLA marbling scorecards off the website and I scored a few bodies in my uh, boning room myself and, you know, we sort of came up with threes. Like, it's nothing fantastic, but the flavours – uh, amazing, and we've been able to convince customers to buy it to give it a go because they trust us and what we're trying to achieve. So, you know, the Nguni is what we're going down, and we're breeding up over uh, retired Jersey cows. So everyone that's listening going, Jake's crazy using these <laughs> African Zulu cattle. How about I've bought five Nguni bulls and I'm breeding them over eight-year-old chopper Jersey cows. You know, how's that for a, for a strange thing to do? But I can buy these jersey like I'm I'm land limited, right? So I can buy these jersey cows for nine hundred bucks. I don't have to grow them. I don't have to feed them to grow any bone or wait for maturity. They're culled for infertility because they've missed a couple AIs. Uh, I'm fine with that. I, I do a two month joining. I just tested my last batch and we had an eighty percent join rate. And the the twenty percent that are dry come straight through the butchery and we dry age the jersey carcasses, old mature cows. And we sell them as aged um, Jersey beef, and I've got a cult following for it. You know, the eating quality of Jersey, I would go out on a limb and say it's the best meat I've ever eaten. Eight-year-old Jersey cow, as long as it's been fattened in the paddock properly, you know, been treated in the boning room properly. Um, so, yeah, so that's a bit about what we're doing with uh, cattle genetics, I guess. Um, with with sheep, where we've got a Aussie shedding genetic called Catalyst from a farmer, Andrew Freshwater. I've been really happy with those use they you know i'm on unimproved pastures you know we, we manage our pastures with grazing but i'm not sowing anything down and those things it doesn't seem to matter what they eat they stay fat and happy 
Uh, and, you know, they've been fantastic. And I just bought a heap of Damara ewes, got them for $25 each, just a dollar cost average my entry and grow my herd. And I'm using my Catalyst rams over my Damara ewes just to, you know, push a bit more fleshing into them. Yeah, cool. There'll be someone listening that I'm sure there's about, I don't know, there's a lot of people over, over my time where I've rattled on about how we should just get into Jersey meat production because of, because, yeah, I've, had a few experiences eating jersey and, and they've always been good ones. And if you get over the fact the fat's yellow and the and the meat's a bit dark, it, it eats wonderfully. So I've often had that conversation over a couple of beers with people. So great to hear that you're hooking in hooking into that that model because I think it's it's got to be a winner, particularly where you've got trusting consumers who don't have to go into a supermarket and see this different product. They'll get it out of the they'll defrost it and they'll eat it and they won't and they won't um, think twice. And and you get the yeah you get the Beta carotene from the yellow fat as well. It's a it's a win win with Jersey, I reckon. So it's, yeah, I can definitely see how that's a, a winning model. I haven't had much to do with in unis, but um, yeah, obviously, and I guess we never consider that labour around a, a small burning room in terms of yeah carcass weight and that sort of thing. The efficiencies are always focused on on the big end of town. So um, yeah, it's interesting how you've had to kind of re rethink the industry to to build it from ground up, which which is always really intriguing and and makes us, yeah, I guess, second guess everything about about how we go about running the meat industry. So it's yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, well, I've had multiple staff quit because they're sick of boning out big bodies of beef. You know, like we, when I when I process when I finish one of my short horns or one of my Herefords, you know, I like to get them up to three hundred and twenty kilos on the hook. You get a really nice big steak with heaps of marbling and a good fat cap and. Uh, you know, none of the fat's wasted for me. We trim it all off and we do rendered tallow for sale and all that. Um, but when my work, it's hard enough to find butchers that actually know how to butcher. They're all, you can find qualified butchers now that have never boned a body of beef in their lives. You know, they're just all slicing the box meat. It's hard enough to find the labour and then you burn them out and destroy their bodies with big bodies of beef. Uh, you know, it, it's a nightmare. So these little linguini have been fantastic. And, you know, everything about them, you know, I've, uh, one of my cows in the paddock, she's eight years old, just about to have a seventh calf. You know, I just I just see longevity and, and, and fertility. She's never been medicated. She's never had a vet look at her, never been drenched, never had a calf pulled. You know, that's just dollar signs to me. Yeah, excellent. That's an intriguing business model. So the uh, your social supply in terms of total production system, it's local cafes, restaurants, and then obviously boxed frozen stuff into direct-to-consumer as well as direct-to-restaurant in the, in the capitals and then, and then through your local through your 24-7 butcher shop. any I guess you've got all aspects covered there, really. Well, look, we, we do way too much. We raise too many different types of animals and we sell produce too many different ways. I would not recommend anyone do what I do, but I've just, <laughs> I've just thrown everything at the wall and I'm just seeing what sticks. You know, I've got no uh, agricultural experience. I've got no experience boning animals. I've got no experience shipping frozen produce around the country, um, dealing with restaurants, like everything that I've learned has been through hands-on in the last four years. And, you know, now we're starting to get a really clear picture of what people want, what's easy, what's achievable. You know, like when I, my first cows that I bought were shorthorns because I, I, I thought, you know, I did, did a bit of research, lovely eating, good temperament, colour, nice pretty hides. I thought I could tan some hides, value-add some hides, and the animals are just too heavy. You know, they destroy my pasture and they're too hard on the butchers. So we've had to pivot and, you know, it's, it's lesson after lesson. 
we're definitely leaving efficiencies and our money on the table because we're spread too thin. But, you know, that's just been part of our learning and, and seeing what works for us in our area with our customer base. And, you know, we're working on refining those things as we speak. So, you know, you said what's going to be for Walkie Farm in 10 years. Like, I hope we always still supply a few Gucci restaurants and a couple of boutique uh, organic supermarkets and that stuff. But, you know, I think 80% of our sales are always going to be coming through our website, which we only started six months ago because it just makes things so much easier. You get paid up front instead of 30 days late. You know, you, you we do mixed boxes, so we get to choose what goes in the box and control our inventory, you know, all these little things that it's hard to take into consideration early on. Yeah, excellent. So, the, um, so obviously... Probably not a lot of time for sleep at the moment. You'll be you'll be flat out. I think as soon as you get off here, you'll be you'll be packing boxes with the with your sister you've just grabbed out of school. So you've um, plenty on, and I guess that's part of the entrepreneurial journey. Always, there's not not a lot of time for snooze. But um, I guess ultimately, as you grow, you'll you'll be able to get a few bodies around you to to help manage that workload. Yeah, I've got. I've got two full-time farm hands that run the farm, so I, I don't get involved in farm chores very much. I haven't for a couple of years at this stage. You know, I go out when we're building new enterprises, when we're doing uh, new infrastructure, if there's yard work, drafting cattle, you know, I'll be out there. Uh, but I spend most of my time at the butchery, uh, you know, driving sales and facilitating orders and that sort of thing uh, at the moment. But, yeah, you know, there's a few of us here and it's just, it's, it's a constant yo-yo. I, I go out the farm to ramp up production to meet sales, and then all of a sudden we're overproducing and I've got to come back here and try to sell the stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and such is the joy of a small business. But, uh, yeah, no, hats off to, to the tenacity and the hard work. It's it's great to see that, yeah, any businesses which are completely vertical and can see both ends of the of the value chain really clearly, I think it's – there's a lot we can all learn from from those businesses, so it's great to great to hear your story and yeah, definitely wish you all the best for for a growth path that that sees you supplying product into into lots of different places. But I will let you get back to boxing that meat up. Cool. Thanks for having me. Cheers, mate. Thanks again to our mates at Heineger who are proud world leaders in the manufacturing and supply professional sheep shearing and clipping equipment. They understand that their customers rely on the quality and performance of their products each and every day. Also thanks to our friends at MSD Animal Health and Orflex. They offer an extensive livestock product portfolio focused on animal health and management, all backed up by exceptional service. Both of these companies are wonderful supporters of the Australian and New Zealand livestock industries, and we thank them for sponsoring the Headshaper podcast.